Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. James, good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, March 6th, 2009. This week, episode 115 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Hopefully, shortly, we'll have the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, joining me here in the uh, studio. We do have, at the controls, the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good day, Chris. We're also going to have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild, joining us today. We'll bring him in at halftime and also again at the roundup. Today's segments are going to include, we've got Robert, Robert Bean, Ashbury Distinguished Lecturer, and Professor Tang Lee from the University of Calgary. We're also going to have the uh, halftime with Brian McFarland's of Legends, and then we will have the roundup. Um, we've been updating that IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, of course, we've got to thank those sponsors. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, to contact the show, you call 724-444-7444, enter our show ID 1547, press the number 1, and then you can join the show. You can also download the show by going to that iaqradio.com website and follow the link that says go to the show or you can get us from iTunes. Don't forget, you can also get IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We also can uh, take suggestions, requests. We've been getting a lot of people asking us about bringing on guests by email. You can also contact Cliff at Cliff. Zlotnick at unsmoke.com. Those email addresses are also on the homepage of iaqradio.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at 
iaqtraining.com. Since the Z-Man's not here today, I'm going to take the microband trivia question. Okay, we do have a correct answer from last week's question. Paul Haas of Morse Center Associates in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, had the correct answer. This week's microband trivia question for Friday, March 6, 2009. Canada's foremost castle is complete with decorated passages, secret passages, and 800-foot tunnel, towers, stables, and gardens. What is the name, and where is it located, and when did construction begin on that castle in Canada? You can answer the microband trivia question by emailing me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliff, or if you know it right now, you can text it in online. We've been having too much spam on the uh, other websites, so we're going to go with it that way from now on. All right, let's uh, move on to some introductions for our two really great guest we have today. I'm going to start with Professor Tang Lee. He's an internationally recognized architect and expert in sustainability and healthy indoor environments, including acoustics, lighting, and indoor air quality. He teaches building science and sustainable design, as well as civil engineering at the University of Calgary and mechanical engineering at the University of Manitoba. He's funded by the U.S. Department of Energy Foundation, U.S. DOE, and a National Science Foundation, and PG&E. He developed the first graduate-level award-winning AIA, that's the American Institute of Architects, course on indoor air quality back in 1994. The curriculum was disseminated to over 300 universities through the Vital Science Project at the University of California, Berkeley, he teaches other professors how to teach a course on indoor air quality. Professor Lee has over 300 publications in technical journals, industry magazines, and conference proceedings. He is a highly regarded, especially for his work in solar energy, building science, and building envelope failures, and indoor air quality. He is oftentimes retained to conduct building failure investigations and conducts comprehensive indoor air quality investigations on an interdisciplinary team for cases that don't seem to be able to be solved by others. We also have today Robert Bean, ASHRAE Distinguished Lecturer. Robert is a registered engineering technologist in the field of building construction engineering. He's an avid student of industrial design, the way things look, and indoor environmental ergonomics, the way things feel. In 2007, Robert was selected as a distinguished lecturer for the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, speaking on the human factor in HVAC, radiant-based HVAC systems, and snow melting systems. He's also the editor of the Journal of Indoor Environmental Quality and the HealthyHeating.com, a not-for-profit website on anthropology, architecture, and indoor environmental ergonomics. In honor of our guest from Canada, we've got some introductory music.
gentlemen. <laughs> That's laugh. great. That's great, Joe. You know, if Lester Pearson was alive, he'd be rolling in his grave right now. I don't know if he'd be rocking and rolling, but he'd be rolling. <laughs> well, good afternoon or good day, Robert. Professor Lee, do we have you too? Yes, good morning, folks. Good morning, good day, wherever you're listening from. We're we're worldwide, gentlemen, and we really appreciate both of you joining us here today. Let's let's get right at it. Um what I'd like to do is kind of first I'm going to direct some questions at each of you individually, and then we'll throw some up that either one of you can grab. Let's start with uh, Robert. Robert, I'm, I'm curious, what is the human factor in HVAC and radiant-based HVAC systems? Those are actually two separate lectures that I do for ASHRAE, Joe, and let's let's start with the first one. And before the acronym police show up, right, we should state that uh, HVAC stands for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Uh, here forever known as HVAC. How does that sound? Thank and, you. And uh, I also call it probably one of the most distorted terms in building science, and maybe we could talk about that later. But anyways, you know, all across uh, North America, there's, you know, literally tens of thousands of HVAC designers sitting at their computers every day, crunching out numbers and uh, drafting out HVAC systems. And you'd think that for a system which has, an immediate impact on human physiology and psychology that each of these designers would be versed in the things like interviewing clients uh, on their indoor environmental needs or that they would have a working knowledge of ASHRAE's uh, American Society of Heating and Refrigeration, Air Conditioning Engineers, Ventilation Standard uh, 62.1 and 62.2, and or Canada's uh, CSA F326, which is the Residential Mechanical Ventilation System Standard, or that they would have a working knowledge of ASHRAE 55, which is, you know, the thermal environmental conditions for human occupancy. But outside of the world of ASHRAE, uh, where most of the design, build, mechanical contractors and wholesalers operate, very few, in fact, get to interview the client. And oftentimes they're deliberately isolated from the client by the architect or the builder for various reasons. Uh, and that's another topic on itself. Um, some are certainly versed in the, you know, in the ventilation standards, um, but sort of based on my informal research, I would say that less than 10% of those designers would know about ASHRAE's uh, thermal environmental conditions for human occupancy standard, and fewer would actually own it. And even those that do own it, fewer would still would even know about the research work that went into creating the document. So in this so-called what I call modern age, uh, building occupants and homeowners still have to work and live in spaces uh, that are built by an industry which is not judged on indoor environmental quality, but they're judged by the building codes, which are minimum requirements, which is often forgotten. And the big thing is, is that they're judged on how to assemble parts as opposed to assemble why. And so the operative phrase there is why versus how. And that's why, at least what I believe, is why construction still to this day looks at design from the outside in instead of from the inside out. And by that I mean that architects, interior designers, and, H and HVAC, and all of the related trades and material suppliers really need to take a basic course or basic studies in the human body's uh, thermal and respiratory systems and start to design and build structures that serve the need of the body instead of the systems uh, that serve the needs of the building. So designing for the body as opposed to the building. 
And we can do that by teaching people first why and then the how. And that way we can judge them on meeting the human needs as well as the building safety needs. So that's what that first uh, topic is all about. The other one you talked about, radiant-based HVAC systems, that's part of the first topic. And it really recognizes that one of the most powerful influences in thermal comfort is the radiant exchange which takes place uh, between occupants and the building mass. And that, as we all know, that radiant stuff is pretty powerful. I mean, it's, it's so powerful, of course, that people will move towards it uh, or away from it depending on whether they're hot or cold. And we know that even some plant life, you know, will tilt and rotate its foliage uh, towards the sun. And we've all seen, you know, pictures or our own pets sort of napping away their life. I wish we could do that, <laughs> napping away their life in the sunshine. And so one of the other things, and some people think this is, you know, might be a coincidence, but the human body uh, with an almost perfect skin emissivity, which is around 0 0.97, 0 0.98, it was designed with perfection to emit and absorb radiant energy. And so skilled, what I call skilled comfort designers, recognize that important radiant element, and they can encourage the body to release heat via radiation for comfort cooling or to suppress the release of body heat for comfort heating. And they can do that with a combination of architecture, interior design, and mechanical systems. So that's what those two particular lectures are all about. Very interesting. I'll have to join someday and uh, listen in and get the full, the full lecture. <laughs> Before we do, let's go over to uh, Professor Lee and uh, welcome again to IAQ Radio. And um, what I'd like to do is I, I kind of want to, I'm going to go out a little out of order because while I was doing your introduction and then when Robert... Uh, answered the first question here, it came to my mind that maybe the reason you developed this indoor air quality course and went around and taught others how to teach indoor air quality had something to do with what Robert was just talking about? Oh, absolutely. Robert is absolutely correct. Uh, the fact that we don't spend a whole lot of time in understanding how people react to their environment. And so when architects and designers built these beautiful buildings, um, they're pieces of sculpture. Well, what about the people who are inside the occupants and how do they feel? How Are they healthy? Are they comfortable? Are they efficient? And when the indoor environment is affecting their ability to be productive, it, I don't care how sexy looking the buildings are that there it's not going to be uh very good for the uh for not just the occupants for the business owners and, and so forth and so we really have to go back to basics as robert is saying we have to think about people uh what are their needs everything from from the acoustical environment to the thermal environment and of course obviously to the air quality environment now i'm i'm curious um i i'm assuming your formal education was in architecture but you, you spend a lot of time on building science. Was that a part of your formal education, or did you kind of have to add that on later? Well, in, the, in my formal education started off just like a Robert. I went to a, in Canada, we have colleges, uh, two, three-year programs that look at the technical aspects of, say, engineering or architecture or you know, different types of discipline. And that was very ex excellent grounding to understanding how things work. And then I went to university that, to look at the more theoretical aspects of it. But I found in, in the, uh, the universities, uh, in, and I went to both Canada and United States uh, universities, we find that they spend a lot of time on aesthetic design, the history, uh, the poetics of architecture, and not so much on the building science. 
And that's why I found uh, to be quite deficient in the training of architects, and that's why architects are quite often getting into trouble about keeping out the weather and, uh, you know, buildings are leaking and, and uh, impacting the, uh, the, the health and comfort of the people inside. And so then we depend on mechanical engineers like, you know, people like Robert and so on, uh, who are, have that ability to say, okay, well, our building enclosure is not very good. Um, come and fix it. And so they put in some really big HVAC systems and, and force a whole lot of energy to come into the building to heat, to humidify, to, um, to filter, and so forth. And, of course, we can't continue to do that anymore because we are running into a, uh, an era in which the, uh, the oil prices are going up and it's going to be depleted. So we're going to have to look back at the way we built buildings, which means the, the, uh, the, the passive system, which is the enclosure, the windows, the doors, the walls, the roofs, and so on, um, instead of the active system, which is the HVAC system. I prefer that we try to keep the HVAC system as simple as possible. Keep it simple. Don't take a whole lot of space. Don't spend a whole lot of money, but just enough to uh, manage some of the, uh, the the comfort conditions. But the rest of it should be taken care of with enclosure. You know, if you're going outside in the winter time, you put on a bigger coat to keep yourself warm. Um, we should be doing that with buildings. Excellent. And um, one more real quick one: the Faculty of Environmental Design is envir is having a is that a department environmental design? Yes, it is. It's, well, we call it a faculty, but essentially we're uh, um, a part of a department, uh, our own independent department. And within environmental design, it is uh, quite a catchword that looks at everything from um, what Robert was saying, industrial design to uh, city planning to uh, environmental science um, to uh, urban design to architecture and it also includes environmental science, the science of looking at uh, the, the environment, everything from the natural environment to the built environment. Is that common, or is this a pretty unusual program that you have at uh, Calgary? It is unusual about um, 35 years ago, 40 years ago when we started it, but now a lot of the, uh, the universities, including a lot in the United States, are calling the program environmental design rather than an architecture program because architecture should not just be looking at architecture itself. The architecture is, a, is some type of structure that is either in the natural environment, say some cottages or some um, spas out in the forest, or it could be part of the urban environment. And so you cannot put a building in isolation from that environment, whether it's built environment or natural environment. One has to look at where the you know where it's located, the the views, the winds, the uh, you know um, where the sun is coming from, and so forth. And so we really, if we're going to um, create something in that environment, we have to know how it impacts the neighborhood. Okay, Robert, let's go back to you for a moment here. You've got. Um three key design principles that you talk about design for the body uh let's start with design for the body what do you mean by design for the body i know you touched on it a little bit earlier um, but can you give us a a concrete example of designing for the body yeah you know it, it goes back to what uh, professor lee was saying and, and that is is that indoor environmental quality is is all about conditioning the person and that means that we have to think about air quality, we have to think about thermal comfort quality, uh, sound, odors, lighting. And another one that's often missed is, is actually vibration. And uh, although we don't tend to see that being a concern so much in residences, unless, of course, the residence is located near an airport or near some uh, rail tracks. But 
those those metrics really make up indoor environmental quality. And the interesting thing is is that well, really the the nub when when you focus on designing for the body, everything else related to building design falls naturally in place. And I'll give you a couple of examples. The first example, if you take humidity, um, one of the things that I collect is old antique uh, decoys. And I've got a few decoys that were carved out of the 1800s uh, from the sort of the Chesapeake Bay Area, which, as you know, is a really hot and humid area. Mm -hmm. And I also have some acoustical guitars and some other sort of wood pieces of interest that, that, that I cherish. And those those woods uh, were exposed to a, a, a humid environment. And I brought them here to Calgary. And as Professor Lee knows, you know, here in Calgary, well, people think of Canada and they think, you know, trees and mountains and water. And, and, we, and we have all of those. But Calgary, you know, an, an hour outside of Calgary, it's, it's sand dunes and cactuses. It's, it's a great place to dehydrate wood and bodies. Okay. So, um, if you, so in our, this particular climate, for us, um, dehumidification is, is not the challenge, but humidification. And the funny thing is, is that when you humidity, uh, humidify to 30 to 50%, you know, the body feels better. Um, my guitars sound better, or maybe it's because the people that are drinking the wine at the party <laughs> just make me think it sounds better. I don't know. And then my docs, they, you know, they don't quack or crack as it is. And so, you know, if you design for the body, which means controlling that humidity to that 30%, 50%, you know, everything just seems to naturally become better. And uh, the same thing goes for comfort, you know. At a met rate of about one, which is about the activity level that we're all having here today sitting and talking, uh, wearing light clothing, the radiant exchange uh, from the human body is about 55 to 60% of the total uh, sensible transfer. And yet the occupant ambassador to the HVAC system, technically called, and I hope you're ready for this, it's called a, a thermostat, <laughs> and, uh, okay. and 99% of those ambassadors don't measure the mean rating temperature in this space. They measure dry bulb. And so I look, I just, so how can something which is supposed to feel what we feel, you know, even begin to think that it can represent our thermal experience with radiant energy, you know, if it isn't designed to measure what we measure? And, you know, so that's, that's really one arrogant instrument in my book. And, and boring from, <laughs> boring shamelessly from Dr. Joe Steve's books, book of technical phrases that's absolutely stupid right and uh, <laughs> and and here's the thing you know when you build high performance buildings the interior surface temperatures are higher in winter and they're lower in summer and as a result there's less discomfort due to that radiant transfer so in these cases the high performance building it meets the needs of the body but also reduces the energy requirements and you can get away with dumb devices because the building takes away, takes away all of the guesswork. So now, you know, it's funny. I have this uh, image that I use uh, in my presentations, and it's from uh, Louis Lepaul Boile, who uh, in 1823 or 24, I think, painted uh, his version of what's called the cinq sens or the five senses. And, of course, that's what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, and what we touch. And, I, you know, I really think that every designer, whether it's architecture or interior design or mechanical, should get a copy of this print and, you know, use it as a constant reminder that all design is about human design. So that's what designing for the body and not the building is all about. Okay, now this 
thermostat on the wall do you what uh what methods do you use to do you use a different method for determining when you know the, the relative humidity is adequate uh what what additional devices do you use in these areas well, I mean, instrumentation is getting pretty good. I mean, that's. I mean, I I'm not a big fan of technology for the sake of technology, but I am a fan of technology if it improves the accuracy, um, or serves as a better representative of of what the human body is experiencing. Now, when it comes to the radiant exchange in this in a building, for example, what it should be doing is measuring not just only the dry bulb, but also taking surface readings. Because the human body has this intimate relationship, radiant relationship with all of the surfaces in the room. So if that thermostat is supposed to be the ambassador, it should be measuring what we measure. And what the human body measures, of course, is the dry bulb temperature, but also what's called this mean radiant temperature. And when you actually take the mean radiant temperature uh, with the dry bulb temperature, you get what, in fact, is called the operative temperature. And the operative temperature is really what the human body measures and it's what we should be referring to in our codes and our standards and, and specifications. I see. All right. Well, let's go back to Professor Lee for a moment. And um, I'm curious, we, you know, we talked about the department being the, the Department of Environmental Design or Faculty of Environmental Design. Um, do you ever run into students that are a little disappointed that you're spending a lot of time on building science issues as opposed to the art in architecture? Yes, because I'm not sexy enough. <laughs> not me personally, but but the subjects that I teach is uh, is, is not looking at the latest fad and fashion and all those you know architects out there these doing these incredible sculptural buildings that uh, you know makes them you know really happy looking at those things because it's it's a delight to look at. Uh, and I said, wait a minute, yeah, that's really important, but uh, who are you designing that building for? It's, there's people inside. There's, and if, if, uh, you know, if they're sick, what good is a beautiful building? <laughs> and so I get them to think about that, and I try to really hit them over the head and say, look, if the building's leaking, you're going to be sued. You know, and, uh, and not just because the building is leaking and it's causing some material damage and rusting and rotting, but you're going to also impact the health of the people inside. You know, when any time there's water coming in, there's it's going to have some molds growing in it, and you're going to have all kinds of people getting affected, and they're going to, they're, and that's even more serious from an ethical point of view as well as a legal point of view, that you're going to have to look after these things. And yes, it's not as, as sexy and exciting as a beautiful piece of sculpture and the color and the proportions, but this is your responsibility um, to look after these things. And so I give them this kind of uh, fear tactic, and then I try to tell them, you know, from ethical responsibility, you've got to look at these things, and here's the way you should look at it. And once I start to get into it and telling them some of the simple things and, and using uh, uh, some of Robert's ideas about, you know, uh, simplifying, you know, the ambassador as a thermostat is a wonderful term, um, then they're starting to say, hey, you know, there's some value to this. There's a science to this. There's a logic to this. In fact, the the science of um, the building science is really uh, elementary school physics. <laughs> you know, heat, heat expands when you heat it up. Uh, you know, and those kinds of things. So I'm trying to change that around, but it's really difficult because um, I'm the only person. Everybody else teaches design issues or historic issues, and I'm sort of the lone voice in this. So it's a little frustrating at times that. Uh, you know, I'm not getting a whole lot of support, 
but then I've got um, uh, colleagues in other universities in the same position, and uh, we decided that uh, we're going to band together and call ourselves the Society of Building Science Educators. And so that's throughout North America and internationally, and we uh, are the ones that's trying to put some um, responsibility back into the students. And it's a great organization, and every year we go and share information, how do we teach, and how do we get students to understand the importance of these kinds of things. That's excellent. That's great to hear, and I, I hope it's successful. I'm sure it will be. Before we go to halftime, I want to just ask a quick question of Professor Lee um, with respect to enclosures. What's, you know, what are the big changes, or maybe you can pick one big change in enclosures these days with respect to how we're designing these new buildings? Well, the, the enclosure, actually, we have to go back and say, well, why do we need enclosure? Well, that's shelter. Uh, we human beings are very, very fragile. We know we're, we're kind of hairless, except a little bit on top of our head and a few other places. And so we can't stand the wind. We can't stand too much sun. We can't stand too much cold and too much humidity or not enough humidity. So we have to wrap ourselves up with this enclosure, and that's the uh, you know windows, walls, roofs, and floors, and so forth. And that has to separate the indoors from the outdoors. And you have to make that enclosure robust in such a way that it, it can minimize the exchanges of those kinds of things unless you want it to. You know, open the windows if you want some fresh air or turn on, turn on the uh, fan in the, that, that, that goes through your walls and so forth. But that enclosure has to, first of all, be made airtight, and that's really an important aspect of it. More so important than what we call vapor diffusion uh, that, that causes condensation and cold climate issues as well as in hot climates. And so making the building airtight now, that's maybe counterproductive. People are saying, well, why are we making air tight? Are you putting a Ziploc bag over your, your head? That's not a good thing. And I say, yeah, it's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you're going to decide to put a Ziploc bag over your, your, your head, uh, please put a hole in it. You <laughs> 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 can breathe. And, and that's what we do with our enclosure. We put a, basically, if you uh, rip out everything, you've got this vapor barrier in there that's sealed and lapped and so on. And uh, But you've got to be able to control the amount of air that you want to bring in. Not too much, not too little. And you've got to make sure that air that's coming in is not from some garbage containers picking it up or a dog run or someplace else that has all kinds of pollutants from your neighbor's uh, dryer. So you've got to put your air intake in, this, in the cleanest location in your building. And I always say, uh, you know, getting back to some of what Robert's uh, are doing, is uh, the air intake should be up as high as possible in the building so that you bring in the fresh air, not at the ground. And I find too many air intakers down at the ground. And I use the uh, analogy of a human body. <laughs> Why is our nose up by our head and not down by our toes? <laughs> yes. And, and, so that you know something very logical, using the body as an analogy of how we try to maintain comfort um, with the body's met metabolic system, but also um, making sure that you can separate the indoors from the outside with a good air barrier, and then looking at insulation and all, all those other things. Now, when you speak of air barriers, I I have a friend Andy Osk who does a presentation, and he he talks about the air barrier, the vapor barrier, and the thermal barrier. Those are your three barriers, and and he would agree with you wholeheartedly that the air barrier is the most important. Can you tell people a little, uh, just uh, give us an idea, a visual of what is an air barrier, what acts as an air barrier? I know there are, are numerous different ones, but let's go on the. Um, on the walls, on exterior walls. What are some of the better air barriers that you're seeing? 
Okay, air barrier is, you have to think of air barriers not as a material, but as a system. Anything okay. can stop air. Anything that can stop air is an air barrier. Um, you know, a paper bag is an air barrier, unless until it rips a piece of polyethylene is an air barrier. Um, a piece of drywall is an air barrier. Even a coat of paint is an air barrier, unless it cracks. And so you have to look at, because we built buildings with component parts, we have to put them all together. And the key to an air barrier is continuity. Continuity of all those components coming together. That's the, the key to making sure that everything's airtight. So yes, you can have um, a piece of drywall and you cannot blow your, you know, you can blow and blow until you're blue in the face and nothing's gonna go through, but what about the joints? What about when you put in the, uh, the electrical outlets? You know, what about when you have to put in, you know, other things into that, through that wall and hang your pictures and all those things. So it's important to look at that as a total system, as an air barrier. So I don't want to go and flog any particular products that it's, you know, purported to be an air barrier. We have to look at it as the system component parts and how it is, uh, inter uh, how it's meshed together to maintain that air tightness in a building. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Gentlemen, we're going to uh, go to what we call our halftime here, and then we'll bring you back for the second half of what's been uh, an interesting interview so far. Okay, today at halftime, we've got uh, Brian McFarland of Legends Environmental Services. Brian, I understand you made a big announcement at the IAQA convention. First, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, thanks for having us. I'm glad to be here this week. Uh, we, we did, in fact, make a, uh, a big announcement at the uh, IAQA uh, convention uh, down in Dallas. And what that announcement was is that the insurance carrier that, well, first of all, we have a program, or Legends has a program that is, uh, uh, I would say, endorsed by the Indoor Air Quality Association as their uh, membership uh, insurance program. And through that program, the Indoor Air Quality Association have been able to take advantage of uh, reduced rates, uh, insurance rates, uh, as well as enhanced coverages based on their membership through the IEQA and also certification through the Indoor Air Quality Council. Uh, what, what we just announced is that that's, that program has been so successful for both uh, the insured and the carrier in the way of reduced claims for the carrier and savings for the insured, that the, the carrier is now looking for ways to give back to the IAQA member. Uh, and the way that they're going to do that is they're, they're actually passing back uh, uh, what I would say premium to the, to the member by now paying for their membership in the Indoor Air Quality Association. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty big uh, deal. Is it's, it's really the only... Uh, the, the only insurance program that, that we can find that has that type of program uh, where, where the insurance carrier, and, and it speaks volumes about the indoor air quality and the IEQ Association and the IEQ Council, uh, that, you know, that, that they are really providing, uh, uh, you know, value to, to their members and their certification holders and true educational value as well. It's, it's definitely recognized, uh, you know, by the underwriters, uh, as reducing claims that are occurring. Uh, so, so we're real excited about that. That's great news, and I understand this is a corporate membership, so it's like 295 bucks. It's not, you know, nothing to sneeze at. No, it is. You're exactly right. It's a, it's a corporate membership, and we have lots of uh, IAQA members that are 
individual members that will likely, uh, you know, have their membership increased to a uh, a corporate membership, which, you know, there's some additional benefits to that for them as well. Uh, so, so it should be a win-win for everybody, and uh, we're, we're real excited about it. I guess I sh- I renewed a little too early, Brian. Oh well, <laughs> I'll, catch you, I'll catch you next year on that one. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio, and uh, let's get you back in two weeks and get back to the seven sins of buying insurance. That sounds great. I appreciate the time. All right, thank you. Let's go to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Good day, Dieter. Let's we got to get Dieter unmuted. Hello, Dieter. Yeah, I listened very carefully, and I love what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I remember my old lectures when I talked about heat stress, and Bob touched on that. I said, damn it, if you, <laughs> if you design a building <laughs> that is not made for chickens or lizards but for people, you better know a little bit about the people. And Professor Lee said that too. I absolutely love it. In the old days, and Professor Lee is uh, from that school, in the old days, and Joe knows my, my I think I said it first, uh, he knows my, uh, uh, my remarks, but in the old days, a good architect was an applied engineer. He was not supposed to be an artist. And somewhere along the line, we lost it. <laughs> We build beautiful buildings from the outside, and nobody can live on the inside. This is wonderful engineering, I tell you. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And maybe, you know, a lot of people talk, and uh, Joe lives in the area. You know, we heard about Frank Lloyd Wright, who is a wonderful architect. He never, ever built a building that he didn't have a leaking roof. And I think the only building that he ever made was a gasoline station somewhere in Idaho, Idaho, Iowa, or somewhere up there. Uh, You know, I just wouldn't build a living room over a river, which he did here in the (laughs) Pittsburgh area. Falling water, huh, Peter? Unfortunately, unfortunately, and I think Professor Lee will know that too, uh, the new kids in, in engineering and so on, they don't learn about this anymore. They don't know what the human body does. We don't know why you sweat. We don't know why you feel uncomfortable. It has something to do, obviously, with temperature and relative humidity, depending on the environment. And um, <laughs> to me, it is so obvious. <laughs> um And I'm flabbergasted to hear that every time I talk to old architects who have gray hair like I do and uh, have wrinkles, I said, the young kids just don't learn that anymore. And are are we losing a whole generation of architects who don't know that people have to live in a building? You know, I mean, I do that with tongue in cheek, but I see it so often something that is so obvious to me, I guess we call that common sense, doesn't make any sense to uh, some of the people I talk to. <laughs> Somebody can pick up on that one. Well, and, let's do that. Um, but uh, I, I, I think those are wonderful comments that I heard, and those are things we forgot, and I think we better learn in a hurry how to remember all of those good things. And use them to build and design the right house for people. Yeah. Excellent. Any comments? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it's it's Robert here. I um, my my wonderful wife Karen and uh, the outstanding team at uh, Care West Day Hospital here in Calgary. They they work with mature adults who uh, live at home, uh, but their quality of life has been diminished because of physical, uh, mental, and social health problems. And essentially, the, you know, this this happens to all of us. And I think this it's like. It's like the world of architecture and design forgets about the evolution or the, the maturing of people in space. In other words, we build spaces for the youth as opposed to not to the seniors and or mature people as or old farts, however you, however you want to call us, right? <laughs> but we go through we go through this process where we start to lose our visual acuity, we start to lose our manual dexterity, we start to lose in our cognitive abilities, and those are things. Please you know, don't are, remind are, me. and so you know like from from an architectural point of view or even from a mechanical point of view we we forget that it's a human that's living in this space and they have to have a relationship with the building they have to have a relationship with the mechanical system so in many ways it goes back to one of the the other three rules i have which is designing for simplicity and not complexity and that is to just keep that in mind that you know, as we age, we end up with cataracts, we end up with macular degeneration or dexterity. Of course, we lose through arthritis or Parkinson's disease, or we lose our cognitive ability through, you know, vascular diseases or Alzheimer's. So Artificial knees, in my case. <laughs> there you absolutely. So I think architects and, again, designers and mechanical people have forgotten that, uh, you know, we, we are these people and we need... And we need things to be simple and clear and understand. I mean, everybody that owns a house or operates a building, they're not engineers. I mean, they're bakers and they're bus drivers and they're the school teachers. And and I think we forget that. So design for simplicity. Uh, go ahead, Professor Lee. Yeah, yes, uh, yeah. Thank you for speaking. And we really have to understand that um, just like uh, we wear different fashion, if I could use that term, if we're down in Florida or up in in Inuvik or whatever, um, our buildings should also respect the climate and be designed accordingly to that. And unfortunately, we, uh, you know, everybody um, reads home and garden magazines and so on, and they say, "Oh, I love a California-style home." And you put that California-style home in Utah or in Idaho or up here in Canada, it doesn't work. I mean, Mexican-style homes are beautiful and work very well in Mexico, but it doesn't work in any other location. So we have to look at a response to climate and to adjust for that because we have to do differently. We have to look at animals and, and, and trees and plants. We cannot grow a fig tree up here in Canada. We can't grow a um, you know palm tree up here because it just doesn't work. It's going to be all, it's, It just doesn't happen. And likewise, uh, certain species and so on, and uh, and so we, we as human beings, just because we can, you know, bring in a lot of energy to heat and cool in you know our homes, uh, should we? That is the question. Should we be doing that without looking at uh, altering the uh, the basic designs and coming up with other types of technologies? So I like I like using the uh, in my teaching. I like using the human body as an analogy because people can start to understand their body and then their relationship to the environment. And likewise, the building should be the same thing. Okay, gentlemen, I'm going to bring Dr. Wild back in for the roundup. We're going to mute Dieter for a moment. But before we continue with the second half of the interview here, we've got to thank some very important people. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at 
microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. Gentlemen, let's, uh, let me throw out a couple questions that either one of you can help me out with here. What's the Canadian equivalent of the United States Green Building Council? Simply the Canadian Green <laughs> Building Council. All right. We're real creative up here. <laughs> are they affiliated at all? I'm really not. I'm not that familiar with the. Yes, they are. They're affiliated. Okay. And we have chapters across Canada, just like you have chapters across the different states. Let, let me ask you this: what What are they doing right with respect to these green buildings? Well, they're starting to recognize that we have to build buildings that are more uh, conducive to the environment that. Um, uh, that, that reduces energy and using recycled materials and reducing consumption and all that. But what's most important that I really like uh, seeing, which of course is their LEED program, which has some a lot of faults to it, uh, but it, what it does is it recognizes indoor environmental quality. Too often when we talk about sustainability, it's, all, it's mechanical engineers who say, oh, we can reduce energy consumption, which is fine, but it doesn't look at the health of the occupants health from indoor quality to lighting to acoustics. And so the Green Building Council started to recognize that, hey, we can't have buildings that are energy efficient if people inside are getting sick. <laughs> so at least they've got that um, right in the first place. Okay. And what can you describe for us your definition of sustainability? I get different feedback on that. That's a that's a loaded question because it depends on who is talking about sustainability. They can talk about sustainable sustainable economics of a particular financial institution too. But in terms of true sustainability, it looks at the fact that we really should not to do any harm to the environment as we uh, continue to to exist. Um, and some people say that humans should is a is a disease on the planet. And we should do away with people, and I don't I don't subscribe to that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you want to go that far, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, please <laughs> declare that. And so we have a right as any other uh, living organisms on this planet. Now, but what is our impact on that environment and the things that we do? Do we really need everything that we uh, uh, really want? Like Gandhi said, uh, there is enough in the world for everybody's need, but not for everybody's greed. And that's really what we should be thinking about when we look at sustainability. Robert, any comments on what we're doing right? Yeah, uh, yeah. what are we doing right? I think we're, we're waking up uh, to what we've done in the past. And I th- and I think we've realized that you know we've we've sinned and we've sinned badly, and uh, you know that we have to make corrections today. And I and I think I'm you know a lot of people, including Professor Lee, you know we believe that the future is uh, heading in the right direction, and it's going to take care of itself if we subscribe to the things that we've always known. But what's going to get us is of course is what we've done in the past, and uh, that certainly has to be our number one concern. So what are we doing right as we're waking up? Okay. Let's take the opposite. What what could we be doing better or what are we doing wrong with this green building uh movement? Well, I think there's 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 no clarity and I think the 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 
public, um, as a general rule, still don't quite understand what all of this is about. And then part of it has to do with the confusion in the terms that we use. You know, people mix up sustainability with green, with energy efficiency, and all of those words are actually different words. They mean different things. Ultimately, they're like little eggs in a basket, and that basket is called earth stewardship. And so I think if we dropped all of the fancy words and just, you know, what kind of a steward are we uh, to to the world? And so... You know, in terms of what we're doing wrong is we're creating confusion. I think uh, having all of you know, confusion by the words we use, confusion by all of the associations, all of the programs. I mean, if you look at the U.S. GBC, the Canadian GBC, and and the pro, the LEAD program, well, LEAD is one of how many programs that exist. I mean, there's the HERS program, there's Energy Star in Canada, we have the R2000 program, we have the Equilibrium program. So there's lots of programs. So I think. One of the things that we're doing wrong is we have too many programs, we're using too many fancy words, and I think we can really simplify and that and I think that word stewardship, earth stewardship really is the basket that we should be working on. And Robert's right. I mean, one, one, I've been teaching for 32 years at the university, and I think my most important thing that I teach is is not so much the technical subjects and the calculations of energy efficiencies and design issues and construction issues, but attitude. I teach attitude. <laughs> and that's yeah. what Robert's talking about. Stewardship is an attitude. And once one understands that attitude, which is, of course, gets into the whole issue of uh, responsibility, ethics, values, and maybe even into spiritualities and so on, then one that have that fundamental basis, then I'm happy that these students who are graduated have the right attitude, and they're going to find different solutions that uh, Robert and I never thought about. And that's what that's the hope that we have. What the future are these these younger people coming through the uh, through the disciplines? Professor Lee, let me ask you. You do a lot of um, expert witness uh, investigations on construction defects. What are the most common? one or two or three construction defects that you run across on a regular basis? Water leak. <laughs> Just one. Water. <laughs> water okay. leak. Uh, I mean, water intrusion is the more technical terms. Uh, however, the water gets into the building, whether it's because uh, there's a, a roof that's leaking or some junction between the balcony and the window and, and the walls and so on, or whether it's what we, we call condensation or rising dampness. You know, however water gets into the building and standing there for a long period of time, that's when all kinds of disasters happen. And it's a, such a simple thing, understanding that, you know, even though water is the essence of life for you and I and all living beings and creatures on this planet, um, but it, it's also part of uh, uh, a deterioration process. And so we don't want water to come into our building. So design the water, design the building to be as waterproof as possible. I like to tell my students, design it like a submarine. <laughs> And they say, what are you talking about? And I say, well, it's an attitude. You know, think about trying to keep out the water and look at every nook and, cor- nook and cranny that you're designing. And you can have some beautiful extensions and cantilevers and beautiful forms, but make sure they're waterproof. Simple as that. Robert, anything on, what about HVAC systems? What, uh, what are the most common problems you, you find? <laughs> uh, complexity. Ah, okay. People try to get too smart, you know, and 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 it doesn't matter, you know, whether it's an air-based system or hydronic-based systems or combination systems. It's just, you know, there's a, in in the world of mechanical systems. Um, well, let me put it this way: there is a 
there is a definite lack of industrial design and product ergonomics in the boiler rooms of America. You know, manufacturers you do a great job of designing the components. So there might be industrial design and product ergonomics at the factory, but what happens is that as soon as it ends up on the job site, you know, the artistry takes over, and um, contractors assemble the stuff in, the, in their eyes, how they think it should look. And as a result, you know, we don't have two mechanic rooms that are the same. And as a, from a consumer product point of view, which is what HVAC systems are, from a consumer product point of view, it's insane that we have all of this complexity and none of them are the, are the, are the same. So I think what we do wrong is, is, we, is, we, is we allow – I mean, there's – I mean, I – Creativity is important, but ultimately the homeowner ends up owning that masterpiece that's left behind by the contractor. And they, at some point, they have to sell that system, and they don't know anything about it. They're, they're, you know, they at the best of times they're confused about what the equipment does. So that's for Joe. For me, that's that's it. You know, we we make it too complex. People don't understand it. None of them are the same, and we can and we can certainly do a better job with that. What about um, the goal for net zero energy buildings? I believe ASHRAE's goal is by 2025. I could be wrong on the date, but you know it's within the next uh, 20 years or so. Do either of you have any uh, predictions on whether we'll be able to meet those goals? Hmm. Yeah, for the listeners, that Professor Lee, you want me to take this or? What you can start, and I'll follow. All right. So for the listeners, what Joe's talking about is this. 2030 challenge that exists in the world of building design and architecture and it's really a global initiative um, and the the goal is to reduce uh, fossil fuel uh, greenhouse gases uh, en- emitting energy by 50% right away so buildings that are built today we need to reduce these the greenhouse gas emissions by 50% and then they're on uh, 60% in 2010, 70% in 2015, 80% in 2020, and then 90% in 2025. And then ultimately, what we're shooting for by 2030 is a net zero energy building and or carbon neutral building. And I don't, you know, for me, I I I think what's going to happen is that I mean, there's so many, there's literally hundreds of thousands of people that are behind this global uh, initiative. They're going to come close. I don't think they're going to hit it, but I think they're going to come close. And But the reality is, you know what, we don't have a choice. I mean, if we care about the future generations, we have to make this happen one way or another. And so I, I, think, we're go- I think it's going to be close. I don't think we're going to hit it bang on, but we'll be close. Um, yeah, Robin made some very good points. And the net zero is certainly something that we should strive for. Right now, it's very, very complicated, very expensive. We need to, as Robert's saying, we need to simplify those. Um, I've been involved with a number of net zero homes, and it just got way out of line trying to force the situation to be completely net zero. You could be 70%, 80% uh, to, towards net zero, and, and that's fine for now. And maybe in the future we can we can continue to do that. But the the, the problem is also not just um, making buildings that way, but also the lifestyles of the people. You can make an energy efficient building, and they leave the windows open, and that's going to of course wreck everything. Or leaving all the lights on, even if you're not in there. So attitude is another thing we need to teach homeowners. But the other thing I wanted to talk about is that yes, all these things towards making sustainable buildings from now on 
is not going to significantly alter the consumption of fossil fuel because we have existing building structure that's still out there. So even by the year 2050, there may be 70% of the existing building is still going to be standing around. And all those buildings are, are dinosaurs. They're consuming a huge amount of uh, resources maintaining those buildings. Do we tear them down? Well, that's not good because there's a lot of embodied energy in building those buildings. We have to think about how do we retrofit those buildings to make them more energy conserving and using renewable energies in there. So I'm more concerned about the existing buildings rather than designing new sexy buildings that are net zero. Um, the challenge for humankind is looking at existing building structure and retrofitting those. So there's going to be a huge, huge market out there in looking at how to make these buildings more sustainable. Well, you've really hit on something that's close to home for me, uh, Professor Lee. I, I think that's something that we, we need to get you back on and talk a little bit more about, how we can do a better job of retrofitting some of these older buildings. Gentlemen, we're going to go to what we call the roundup here. Let's uh, get the roundup started, and then we're going to open the mics for everybody and have one more go around. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, draw high. Shut him up! All right, we're all back now. Let's start with Dr. Dieter. Dieter, any uh, questions or comments? I certainly do have comments. (laughs) I absolutely love the show. And I think, I hope all of our listeners uh, had the same uh, feeling that I have. What did we talk about in the last hour? Common sense. Damn it, let's teach more of it. And uh, I absolutely love what I'm hearing. You know, what Bob said, Professor Lee said, it's the common denominator is go back to basics. And I mean, I sound sound like a football coach. (laughs) (laughs) And hey, we got to revisit of where we are coming from. And we got to realize that there are, in many instances, uh, simple solutions, if you think about it, which look initially very complex. And I, I liked, uh, Joe, I liked your comment. I think we got to come back, and I, I'm living in a house that is about 35 or so years old, and it leaks like a sieve. It was built when energy bills were $30 a month, <clears throat> and nobody can understand that. But... Um, uh, what do I do to my house? I mean, I don't want to tear it down and start from scratch. Uh, but anyway, all the other stuff, I just absolutely love the comments that uh, comments that I heard, whether it's from Europe, from Canada, or the United States. Man, let's go back a couple of steps, think about it, and start all over. And it's not all that difficult. <laughs> Excellent, Dieter. I've got a uh, text question that came in for Professor Lee. I want to make sure I get out here. What is the latest work on air infiltration measurement in existing buildings? So I guess looking at um, 
the question being what uh, I'm not sure if they're interested in what technologies or what the results are of these measurements, but maybe you could just comment on that issue in general, Professor Lee. Well, air leakage in a building and its contribution to heat loss is quite significant. And that's why there's a lot of focus on trying to make the buildings airtight. And But how do you measure air tightness? Well, when Ashley started out, they use uh, some type of factor or they look at a percentage or a crack length of a building around the windows and so on. And it's just a guesstimate. And they've done some research and they try to get as close as possible. But that's not going to tell the story because if the wind is blowing, there's going to be more air leakage than if the wind is not blowing. Or if the mechanical system is overpressurized inside, there's going to be more air leakage than outside. And then you've got holes through the uh, through the exhaust fan in the kitchen and the bathroom and so forth, so and, and up the chimney, in fact. And those dampers that are on there are not up that airtight, and perhaps Robert can speak more about these mechanical systems. But I just wanted to um, to, to try to answer the, uh, the listener's question, is that how do you measure air leakage? Is Well, there is ways of doing that, and what they do is what we call an air depressurization test. And basically, you you remove the front door and you put in this other door that has a great big blower in it, and you measure the air pressure difference between the inside and outside, and you get some idea of the air leakage rate. But again, that is uh, that is at a certain pressure, which we use something like 50 pascals of air pressure difference between the inside and outside. But again, that is just an estimate of based on how much air leakage in the building. And, and then they can try to correlate that with what it might be depending on your climate and how much wind is blowing in that area. There's still a lot of guesswork and a lot of artwork that's related to that. But what is important about these air depressurizations depressurization test is that it identifies where the air leakage is. So when you're sucking air out of the building, you know that there's an air going to be forced in. And so you go around with a little uh, little incense stick, a little smoke uh, detector, and you can find all the locations that air is leaking through, and then that's where you've got to go back and plug it up. So it's a testing method to look at air tightness. Okay. I also have a question. I, I didn't get to a bunch here, and I feel bad. Uh, that was sent in by uh, one of our listeners before the show, actually, when he saw that uh, you two gentlemen were coming on. We were um, we were discussing a document that I want to make sure that we get the uh, name on, the Medical Perspective on Environmental Sensitivities. And um, I will put a link up to that document on the IAQ Radio homepage when we get done with this uh, interview today here. But their question was, um, let's see, based on, uh, let's, uh, they'd like, he'd like to ask you to discuss the types of common building-associated chemicals that are recognized as being triggers or incitants uh, for sensitized occupants and the conditions or circumstances under which people initially become sensitized. Now, I know that's quite a bit there, and do one of you, one of you want to tackle that kind of concisely? Well, maybe I could, um, Joe, because I was one of the uh, authors of that report. That, report. Uh, that is uh, from the Canadian Human Rights Commission that uh, we were commissioned to do so. And Meg Sears is the, uh, the chief writer for that, and we all provided input. And, of course, I, my focus, uh, there's a lot of medical doctors that, uh, going, that has input into it, and my part was looking at the, the, the building environment and how that has impacted the, the air quality in such a way that it affects the occupants within. 
And so we, we're looking at all the different types of chemicals that is being used in our indoor environment, the fact that uh, we're more and more petrochemical-based materials, such as vinyls and linoleums and carpeting and paints and glues and so on. We're really uh, filling our whole house with these uh, artificial material rather than natural materials. And all those things, of course, have a certain what we call off-gassing rate, which means that it smells. Uh, it continues to, to emit odors, and we call them volatile organic compounds, or VOCs, that, of course, accumulating into our air. And while a certain amount of it may not be bad, um, there's the mix of all those chemicals. So there's a synergetic relationship between them, which no toxicologist have any idea how to go about measuring. Toxicology only knows about one chemical and its concentration and its impact on humans, but when you mix two or three or 10 or 50 chemicals in the indoor environment, they have absolutely no idea because there's infinite combinations of synergetic uh, relationships. And so nobody, because of the difficulty, nobody measures it, and so it's ignored. The other thing is that we're spending more and more time indoors. So it's not just concentrations and the type of chemicals, but also that we're spending more time indoors, so therefore longer exposure time. If we're in that environment for longer and longer, we're going to be more and more susceptible. So that's one thing, are the chemicals. But the other thing that we're finding out, of course, is the whole issue of microorganisms, you know, uh, modes and so on. And that is manifest due to, as we talked about, water uh, intrusions into the building envelopes, uh, uh, standing water, pipe leaks, um, or even the way we, we clean or not clean our environment is going to cause some uh, mold growth in, into the indoor environment. So that's really a concern, and that's why we uh, produce that document, because we need to have an understanding of the, uh, that there is a basis, medical basis, for uh, people who are, are getting more and more susceptible, and we're finding in the population that there's more and more people with respiratory illnesses. Uh, what's causing that? More and more people with uh, cancer. What's causing that? And uh, it's because in the, in the indoor environment that we're exposed to, as well as, of course, the, uh, the, the outdoor environment, the, the, the food that we eat and the, you know, the water that we drink, all you know, uh, has a lot of chemical-based uh, from petrochemical, and it's really affecting our health. And it's something that's becoming more and more serious. And, of course, our healthcare system is going out, you know, out, out you know, through the sky because of all these medical interventions that we have to do but not many of them are looking at how to prevent that from happening in the first place. So there's a, there's a lot to that report, and I'm, I'm glad you've identified that as a, as a document. It can be downloaded for free. It's quite substantive, and it's got a lot, a lot of references. So it's not just report itself, which is actually very good to read, but also you can, anybody can go further because we've got something like, I don't know, two, 300 references in that document. Let me go a step further on that because you had a follow-up question, and, and that would be about uh, your feelings on instituting fragrance-free building policies as a measure to benefit public health. We do that. Well, at least uh, I do that at the University of Calgary. We have a, a scent-free policy uh, so that people should not be wearing scented lotions and so on. It's, of course, hard to, to, hard to, uh, to enforce but at least it recognizes that there are numbers of people in that population that are very sensitive to these fragrances. 
and a lot of these fragrances are you know petrochemical based and and uh and should not be in that environment it's like um being next to a smoker and then we recognize the 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 problems of uh second hand smoke well likewise with these fragrances so we're not the only university there's about thirty or forty of them in the United States that also have a scent free policy and a lot of uh agency and government and buildings are saying, hey you know be careful about how much uh, scented lotion you put on yourself because it it impacts your the, your coworkers. So that's a really important aspect of understanding how uh, that you know uh, fresh indoor fresh air is really important. Okay, one more for Robert. I know we're running a little over, guys. Here, uh, Robert, what's the best uh, your best guess on what? I don't know. I don't know if I want to use the word technology, but what um, systems will help us, or what methods will better help us get towards the zero energy building? Is it uh, solar? Is it uh, uh, some other method or technology that we'll see down the road? I, I think I think Professor Lee pretty much answered that already, and that has to do with you know the building envelope and and. I you know I look at the mechanical systems as being like a small child that always never grows up it continually needs power and fuel to keep it going and as it gets older it needs therapy and and so uh, the building envelope the insulation the caulking better windows that's like that's like owning a pet rock right so you so okay. net zero energy you know it's like do you want to have something that needs therapy for the rest of its life and it needs power and fuel and if you do well then you know, build a crappy building and, and put in an HVAC system, right? That that's, uh, that needs power and fuel. If you don't want to do that for your rest of your life, then build high-performance buildings. Make them make them better, better insulation, better windows, better caulking. And what you'll have for the rest of your life is a pet rock, which doesn't need anything. So, I you know, it's it's not a technical a technical solution at all. It's just an application of stuff that the dead men were telling us a long, long time ago. And and I think that's that's it. Um, in terms of mechanics itself, I think you know the need for ventilation will never go away. Uh, thermal comfort, uh, we're going to see that in terms of so for those mechanical contractors that are, that are out there that, are, that make a living on comfort systems, certainly one of the concerns for them is you know as building performance goes up, the need for mechanical performance goes down from a, from a comfort point of view. But that requirement for indoor air quality and ventilation will always exist, whether you got a, a lousy house or you got a high performance house. So. That's my answer on that one, Joe. I appreciate that. And, gentlemen, I've got so many more questions. We're, we're going to have to bring you back. But before we go, we always like to ask, um, let's start with you, Professor Lee. Is there anything you'd like to add? Yes. Uh, the whole issue that without health, nothing is uh, nothing else really matters, and everybody knows that. But what I look at is the young people that are coming up through the, uh, you know, who are in these houses or in these schools and so on that has molds and indoor air quality. And I'm saying, you know, those kids, they, they're, they're in brain fog because they're breathing all these things in because it's not a healthy environment, for not conducive for them to learn. And that's the kid that is not going to be able to, uh, because they can't concentrate on the teacher's lesson and do the homework because they're fatigued or have some other illnesses because of that poor environment, they're not going to reach the trade or profession they were meant to be. And that's such a sad thing that that potential of that kid's life is compromised because we're not providing a good indoor environment. But maybe that's also the kid that could have, could have found the cure for cancer, you know, for the rest of us. And, and it's really sad that that kid isn't able to do that because we have not provided a good and clean environment. Well, I know you gentlemen are helping on that, and we appreciate that. Robert, anything you'd like to add? 
No, you know, well, I just like to echo what Professor Lee just said. I mean, it's you know, we we forgot how responsible we need to be to the next generation, and I and I'm I totally agree with what he had to say there. And the only thing I want to add is to is to Joe Cliff and Chris and, and to Dr. Dieter there. Just you know, thanks for making this uh, program available. Uh, you know, it's an outstanding thing that you guys are doing. And uh, by the way, it makes a great place for uh, exam questions and homework for our students. So. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you. Go ahead. No, that, that was uh, it. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I also want to mention before we go, and uh, I want to thank both of our guests, uh, Robert Bean, Ashray Distinguished Lecturer, and Professor Tang Lee from the University of Calgary. I wanted to mention, I don't know if I did that, um, Robert and uh, Professor Lee, but I know mostly Robert had a great deal to do with this development of the Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Institute of Canada. Uh, course for indoor air quality, and uh, I understand the first uh, the first uh, attempt at it went very well, and that you'll be continuing to offer that course down the road. And having reviewed the uh, course manual, I've got to say that uh, anybody who gets a chance to uh, somehow be involved in either taking that or uh, reviewing the manual, you really should take a look at it. It's excellent stuff. So, gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us this week on Indoor Air Quality Radio. We're going to be back again next week, as we always are, on Fridays at noon. But before we go, I want to thank the wingman, Chris Boisel, for assisting us here, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, but most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.